I can't wait to start this series. It's going to be so much fun. Oh, my goodness. Somebody wrote me this past week, said, why in the world are you calling a series on Jesus, Troublemaker? Friends, he caused trouble everywhere he went. Uh, when he was born, he caused trouble to King Herod. Uh, when he went to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, that brought trouble to Satan and the powers of darkness. He brought trouble to the religious establishment. Everywhere Jesus went, he caused trouble, turning everything upside down. I'm so excited about this new series, and I hope that you don't miss a single week. I want to welcome everybody here today, also those who are viewing on the stream and who are watching from home. We're glad that you are a part of the Sagebrush family. Let me start by asking you a question. Have you ever been in a situation and you couldn't get out of the situation no matter what you tried, no matter what you did? Years ago, I took my family to Branson, Missouri. Has anybody, just out of curiosity, play along at home as well, anybody ever been to Branson, Missouri? Anyone, 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 just a few of us. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's not worth it, to be honest with you, if you want to be honest. Uh, Branson, Missouri, for those of you who have never been before, it's like Nashville, only dumber. Okay, that's basically what Branson, Missouri is. And in Branson, Missouri, they got a neat little amusement park called Silver Dollar City, run by a really neat Christian couple. It's a great amusement park. I would highly recommend you taking your family at some point in time to Silver Dollar City. Well, I remember when I was a kid, it was a big deal for my dad, my mom, to take the family down to Silver Dollar City. Now, if you've ever been in the Midwest during the summer months, you get heat plus humidity, okay? It's a little bit different from what we have here in Albuquerque. We get the blowtorch. They get the blowtorch plus humidity, okay? That's the way it works in the Midwest. You'll walk outside after you've showered, and you'll sweat so bad before you get to your car in the Midwest, you'll wonder why you even showered in the first place. So when it got really hot, my dad would always look at us and say, let's go into the saloon show. I think we'd have a lot of fun there. Saloon show was air-conditioned. It was a lot of fun. It was singing dancing. My dad always bought us root beer floats. You could eat peanuts and open the peanuts up and throw them in your mouth and throw the shells on the floor. It was a really great place. And I remember one time we were watching the saloon show and my dad elbowed me. He said, son, one day you'll take your family to this saloon show. And I remember thinking, no, I won't, dad. My family's going to Disneyland. That's where we're going to go. Well, years ago, my dad passed away. And I guess as kind of a tribute to him, I thought it would be neat to take my family to the Silver Dollar City to endure the same things that I endured as a kid. Well, we, we got to the mid uh, afternoon, and it was hot, and it was humid. So I said, let's go in to the saloon show. So we walk in the saloon show. We're a little bit late, and there aren't seats for all five of us around one particular table. There's a couple of seats over here. There's three seats over there. And so I take my oldest daughter, Mackenzie. We sit over on this side. And my wife and my two younger kids, they go sit over on the other side. Well, the show starts up. And it's a lot of fun, lots of singing, lots of dancing. Well, then this girl comes out on the stage, and she says, I want to sing a duet with my sister. And the guy who's on the stage with her, kind of the MC character, he, he said, you want to sing with your ugly sister? And he went on and on about how ugly this sister was. He said, I bet she's sitting out there somewhere in the crowd. So he starts walking down, looking for the 
ugly sister. Friends, he's not looking for a volunteer. He's looking for a victim. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, I want to help you. You might find yourself in a similar situation at some point in time in your life. I want to help you how you can get out of being the ugly sister every single time. Here's how you do it. Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact with the person looking for the ugly sister. Just do anything you can. Don't look at the other person. Tie your shoe if you have to. Pick up some trash on the floor. Act like you don't even recognize that they're near you, and you will not be picked to be the ugly sister. I got my baseball cap on. I got my sunglasses on. I'm tying my shoe. I'm not paying any attention. I'm kind of looking out of the corner of my eye to see what in the world that guy's doing, though. He's over here on this side looking for the, on and on he goes about how ugly the sister is. Then all of a sudden he starts walking right down the aisle where my table is at. And I said to myself, I said, self, I said, yeah. I said, this is not good right here. And then I'll never forget what he did. He grabbed my daughter by the arm and he picked her up and the spotlight shone down on her. He said, I found your ugly sister and when the spotlight came on he said oh no this girl's too pretty to be your ugly sister and that's when I knew I was hosed at that point in time because he grabbed me by the elbow and he stood me up and I was in shock I was in disbelief and he said what's your name and I said Todd He said, oh, it's Todd. He said, everybody give Todd a round of applause. And so everybody clapped, and it was all exciting. And I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go be the ugly sister. But what do you do in that situation? So they start to drag me down. And I'm walking by where the table is, where my wife and my other two kids are at. But I can't find my wife. And the reason I can't find her is because she's on the ground laughing so hard because they picked me to be the ugly sister. I walk into this backstage area. They put a hat on my head, some kind of frou-frou thing around my neck. They whisper something in my ear. When the door opens up, go out to the stage. And I said, okay. Now, the only reason I've got a video of this <laughs> is because my wife got up off the floor and had the presence of mind to pull out her iPhone and videotape the whole thing. Now, understand, this is years ago. The iPhone quality isn't the greatest, but you'll get the general gist. Here's me as the ugly sister. Take a look. All right, Todd. Shimmy with me. You guys, (laughs) yeah, you're starving for entertainment. That's what's happening with you when you think that's good right there. I didn't want to do that. I did not want to shimmy in front of all the people. And I remember all day long, like, there's the ugly sister. I heard that all day long because it's a small little amusement park, you understand. Friends, I did not volunteer to do that. One of the things that absolutely amazes me about Jesus is he volunteered to come and rescue us from ourselves. There's not a single one of us that would do what Jesus did. Not a single one of us that would leave our throne in heaven to come hear the cursing of man. 
Not, not, a, not a single one of us who would leave their throne room to be born in a stinky, smelly stable. I mean, if you were God, would, would, you, would you put yourself in a position where you're laying in a manger filled with straw and you have a diaper on as a result? If the people that you were creating, if you knew that they wouldn't care that you came, would you still create them? The mouths that you made, you knew were going to curse you. They were going to spit on you. That The hands that you made were going to punch you and drive nine-inch nails into your hands and feet and, and, a, and a sword, a, a, a spear into your side. Would you still create these people? Would you lay down your life for them? That's the amazing thing about Jesus is that he willingly came. And then this was a plan, God's plan, from the very beginning, wasn't it? If you're reading through the Bible and you read through the, the, the Old Testament, 39 books, all leading to the coming of Jesus. And, and then in the New Testament, Jesus comes and turns the whole world upside down. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about the second coming of Christ and what's going to be going on during the end days. Friends, when we get done with this Jesus series, we're going to take him all the way to the ascension and we're going to take him all the way back to the return of Christ. We're going to spend about Four weeks talking about that. All the prophets, though, foretold the coming of a Messiah. And they longed to see the things that we read about. They longed to see God come in the flesh. They endured an awful lot to make sure that we got the message and the prophetic message of Christ. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about it. The Bible says some faced jeers and flogging. While still others were chained and put in prison, they were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world wasn't worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us. So that only together with us would they be made perfect. It says none of them received what was promised. It means never in their lifetime did they see the coming of the Messiah. But oh, how they longed for his coming. And through the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, they wrote down on parchments that were passed down from one generation to another generation. And all told, all the prophets wrote over 300 different prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. God knew that there were going to be a lot of would-be Messiahs, a lot of people who would proclaim to be something that they really weren't. And so it was God's way of saying, when you find the one who fulfills all of these prophecies, then you have found the right Messiah. And the prophecies are so detailed and they're so specific. Let me give you just a couple of them. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So what do we know? We know the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. And so we sing that song around Christmas time. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. That's very accurate. Bethlehem was very, very small community. Just a few thousand people that lived there. How about this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14? 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Written 700 years before Joseph and Mary came on the scene. For all the skeptics out there that think that somehow Jesus circumvented his life to fulfill all these prophecies, how do you pull off your mom being a virgin before you're even born? And yet that's exactly what the Bible says is going to happen, and that's exactly what happened. How about Isaiah chapter 53? Look at the details here. He was pierced for our transgressions. Nine-inch nails went into his hands and into his feet. Crushed for our iniquities. The sin of all mankind was placed upon him. Far more painful than the crown of thorns and the nails that were in his hands was that moment that he became sin. Crushed under the weight of our sin. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds were healed. Prophesied again, friends. Think about this. 700 years before Jesus was crucified. The United States of America is just about 250 years old. Do you realize what 700 years is like? How about uh, Zechariah chapter 11? The prophet Zechariah said that the Messiah would be betrayed and that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Isn't it interesting, hundreds of years later, when Judas decides to betray Jesus, he makes a deal with the high priest, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. He says, I'll turn you over to him. How much will you give me? And the amount was exactly what Zechariah said it would be, 30 pieces of silver. How about Psalm 22? This particular psalm is written 800 years before Jesus enters into our world in a physical form. It is written 200 years before, uh, before Jesus is born. 200 years earlier before Jesus was born, that's when crucifixion became a means of execution. For 600 years, there was no means of crucifixion by killing someone. 800 years in advance, the prophet that says this in Psalm 22. Look how clear this is. A pack of villains encircles me. Isn't that exactly what happened to Jesus when he was on the cross? They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and they gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Happened just the way it was written 800 years earlier. Friends, one of the things that you can hold on to when you begin to doubt your faith and you begin to wonder if all this is really true is just look up the Old Testament prophecies and look at the detail and understand this. Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Every single one. Now, this didn't happen by accident. Here's what's interesting. By the time the Old Testament ends with Malachi and the New Testament begins with Matthew, did you know there's a period called a period of silence? And it's 400 years of silence. There's no prophetic uh, words. There's no angel visitations. It appears that God could care less about his creation because God is silent for 400 years. But I want you to hear this. God's still working his plan, and his plan is going to work. 
right around 350 uh, B.C., before Jesus was born, there was a man named Alexander the Great who was a Greek conqueror. And he conquered the known world at the time, and he required that every conquered nation would speak a bit of Greek. So everywhere you went, people spoke a little bit of Greek. Just like you have today, there's very few places you can travel to where somebody doesn't speak a little bit of English. So what's God doing? He's setting the table, isn't he? He's setting the stage for the coming of the Messiah. Now the message of Jesus can be spread because during this time, there's no language barrier that's happening. And then around 63 B.C., there was a, a young man by the name of Julius Caesar who defeated the Greeks and the Romans began to rule over all of the known world. And the Romans did something very, very interesting. They allowed people to roam around freely. You could go from one country to another country without worrying about it because all made up the Roman occupation, all made up the Roman world. Now, what does this mean? Well, when Jesus comes on the scene, now the message of Jesus not only can be understood because of Greek, but now I can travel to the far ends of the world because there's freedom of movement to go from one place to the other. You see, God had a plan, and God was working his plan. Galatians chapter 4, verse 5 says, But when the time, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. I love that. When the time was fully come, when the stage was set, God became flesh and entered our world. Now, I, I, I believe the account that's listed there in the Bible for us in Matthew and in Luke that talks about the birth of Jesus. And the reason I believe it is because I never would have done it that way. I mean, think about that. If, if you're the king of kings and you're the Lord of lords and you're going to leave your throne behind and you're going to enter into the world to take on all the sins of all mankind, you're not going to be born to a peasant couple. You're going to pick a really good-looking king and queen, and you're going to say, that's going to be my parents, right? You're going to make sure that you have all the money, all the wealth. You're going to be born in a nice mansion. My goodness, you're not going to be born in a barn. You're going to make sure that you're put in a hospital with the best facilities possible to make sure that your arrival is known throughout the world. But that's not what you read in the Bible, is it? It's a miracle that we even know this story in the first place. There was a girl, her name was Mary. She was just a teenager. When one day she's minding her own business in her home, when an angel appears to her and tells her that she's highly favored and that God has handpicked her and chosen her to give birth to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to the Messiah, the one that people have been waiting thousands of years to come. And in a moment of unbelievable courage, Mary looks at the angel and says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me. As you have said. Now she knows when she says yes to this request that all hell is going to break loose in her life. That nobody's going to believe her story. That the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow her. That she's going to conceive and give birth to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And certainly Joseph doesn't believe her. We know that for sure. Joseph in fact says, you know, I'm going to end this relationship. But I'm going to do it quietly. I really love Mary. I could have her killed for her unfaithfulness. But I'm just going to let her go quietly. An angel of the Lord had to appear to Joseph to convince him that what Mary had said was true. And Joseph was a righteous man. He married Mary just as the angel told him to, but he did not sleep with her until after the baby had been born. And then while this whole 
Bethlehem thing. There's a problem here. Mary's from Nazareth, and that's where they're at. Things begin to calm down a little bit. They're preparing everything for Nazareth. And then all of a sudden, Caesar Augustus issues a decree, right? The Bible says it came to pass in those days. They went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So everyone scattered. Everyone went to their own hometown. Well, guess what? Joseph is from where? He's from Bethlehem. So in the ninth month of pregnancy, even though they're living in Nazareth, they make the 70-mile journey to get to Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus issues a decree, and the entire world scrambles to do exactly what he wants because he's the king, you see. Let me ask you a question. What king's really calling the shots here? The king of kings and the Lord of lords is calling the shots. And when they get to Bethlehem, they give birth to the Messiah out in a stable. No great announcement except to some lowly shepherds who are out in the fields watching their flocks at night. And God sends angels. And what do the angels say? They say, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. And there in that smelly stable, Joseph names the baby Jesus. Now, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to notice as you're reading through it that Jesus is called many, many different names. For example, one of the names that you're going to see come up from time to time is they're going to say, Jesus, son of Joseph. They didn't really have last names back in this time period. So many times when there was more than one Jesus, and Jesus' name was very common in the first century, they would say, you know, Jesus. And they say, who are you talking about? Which Jesus we mean? Oh, Jesus, son of Joseph. Oh, okay, yes, yeah, son of Joseph. Oh, that, make, that makes sense. Because everybody believed that Joseph was the father of, of, of Jesus. Now, later on, we got last names, many of our last names, based upon the occupation of the father. Did you know that? Somewhere along my family history, there is a cook. Somewhere. Because that's why I got the name Cook from. There was somebody who must have been a really good cook. And they said, hey, that's, that guy's Todd. He's Cook, Todd Cook. That became his name. Now, here's what's interesting. My mom's maiden name was Baker. So when she got married, she went from a baker to a cook. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's incredible right there. Uh, names like, you ready for this? Names like Smith come from blacksmith, Taylor, Carpenter, Hunter, Shearer, Miller, All those names come from this tradition. Now, you're also going to see in the scripture that Jesus is also referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. So they would say, well, which Jesus are we talking about? Well, he's the Jesus from Nazareth. Remember, Jesus was raised in Nazareth after they had fled to Egypt. When he said it was okay to come, he went to Nazareth. Therefore, he was called a Nazarene. So they would say, what's Jesus you're talking about? Well, Jesus from Nazareth. And so many times, last names became part of the location. For example, names like Hill, Wood, West, York, and Lane come from this tradition. Isn't that interesting? Let me give you another one. You'll hear that Jesus' name is Jesus Christ. And people think, it's so funny to me, People think that Jesus' last name is Christ. And you'll hear them say it from time to time, not in a very nice way, right? Jesus Christ is what they'll say. But it'll be more of a slang kind of a thing. Don't do that. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. Don't, don't, don't be that, that person. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. A title like king. 
or president. You, you know what the, the title Christ means? Anointed one. He is the Messiah. The one that we've been waiting for. I found this interesting. In the Old Testament, the kings of Israel were called the Messiah. Did you know that? They were the representation of God there on their earth. And so they were considered to be the Messiah, the deliverer of their people. But the prophet said there will be a Messiah that will come that will be far greater than any before. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. He's also referred to as Lord. You see that too, don't you, when you read the Gospels? What does that word Lord mean? It means master. It means boss. It means ruler. It's the number one name that his followers pretty much call him. Isn't that interesting? The best way to translate Lord, you ready for this, is owner. That's what they were proclaiming in the first century when they gave their life over to Jesus Christ. They said, you're our Lord. You're our Lord. You're our Savior. You're the owner. When you give your life over to Jesus Christ, you understand that you become a slave to him, don't you? Not slave in the, in the sense that we have here you know, in the history of the United States. This is something in first century where people would choose to be a slave to pay off their debt. We had a debt that was so great we could never pay for it ourselves. We were slaves to the sin debt, but Jesus came and paid that debt. He redeemed us. He purchased us. And now he's our boss. He's our ruler. He's the Lord of lords. He owns us because we were bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So he's referred to as the Lord. He's also referred to as the Son of God. Now, this was the term that Jesus used that got him in the most trouble. Because when you walk around and you proclaim that you're God in the flesh, people take notice of that. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they said, you can't proclaim that you're the son of God. That's blasphemous. So Jesus would pull his disciples aside and say, let me tell you something else. I'm not just the son of God. I am God. He would say things like this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God became flesh. And dwelt among us. This was the title that Jesus gave himself that got him in the most trouble. This is what they tried to get him crucified for. For proclaiming that he was the son of God. Then you're also going to see in the gospels this term called the son of man. And some of you might be confused. What's the difference between the son of God and the son of man? Well, well people in the first century, the Jewish people knew exactly who the son of man was. Because it was defined for us in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Look at this. It says, the son of man is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All people, nation, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is forever. It will never disappear. He will rule over a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So when he called himself the son of man, they said this is the one who's been given authority, who's been given glory, who's been given sovereign power, whose kingdom will last forever, whose kingdom will never die. The also the title of the son of man refers to the suffering, the kind of death that Jesus will endure. Jesus was 100% man. He was 100% God. And he dies on the cross taking on the sin of man our sin debt upon himself. Jesus is also referred to as Emmanuel. And if you've been around any Christmas services, you know that that means God with us. 
God is with us. Matthew 1, 23, the virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is the most comforting thing I have to tell you today. As unbelievable as it sounds, God became one of us, and now he is with us. And he'll never leave you, and he'll never forsake you. And no matter what you face, you don't face any of it alone. He will help you every moment of every single day. And one of the things that's so great about Jesus is because he came, he understands what you're going through. He understands your frustrations. He understands your hurt. He knows what it's like to be lied to. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back. He knows what it's like to to sit at the graveside of a friend who's passed away. He knows all about grief and, 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 and hurt. And so when you're gawking through the valley of the shadow of death, never forget that he is with you. And his rod and his staff, they comfort you. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Of course, the most common name that we know of our Savior is the name Jesus. And this was the name the angel told Joseph to name the newborn king. And that name Jesus means the Lord saves. Jesus will save his people from their sins. And that's why he came. We were lost in our sin. We owed a sin debt that was so great and so big that there was no way we could ever pay for it ourselves. And so Jesus said, I'll go. I'll walk their streets. I'll face their shame. I'll take on their burden. I will be the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And so Jesus came. And all of your sin, all of my sin was placed upon him on the cross for Six hours one Friday, he hung there. And from 12 noon till 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the sky grew dark and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's your Savior. That's your Lord. That's your everything. Paying the price for your sin. And one day when you get to go to heaven, it won't be because you were a good person. Because you're not that good. It won't be because you were religious and you kept showing up during the pandemic. You don't get to heaven based on your goodness. You get to heaven based upon his. And you don't get to heaven based upon anything that you've done, but because you've accepted the sacrifice that he did for you. You accept the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, and you've asked him to come in your life. You've repented of your sin, and you have found him to be faithful, haven't you? You have found him to be true. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the son of God, the son of man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's everything that we've talked about and so much more. Do you ever think about Mary and Joseph and what they were thinking about on that night that Jesus was born? Here they are out in the stable and they're seeing their baby for the very first time. Do you think it occurred to them on that night that Jesus was born to die for the sins of all mankind? Do you think they looked at that baby and thought, behold the Lamb of God who will be beaten and whipped and mocked and spit upon? When they held his tiny little hands 
Do you think they thought one day nine-inch nails will go into his hands and into his feet? When they rubbed across his forehead. Do you think they thought one day they'll place a crown of thorns and shove it down into his head? When Mary picked him up and she listened to the heartbeat of her son. Do you think it ever occurred to her that one day a Roman soldier would take a spear and shove it into his side? And pierce his heart, blood and water would flow. Do you understand who Jesus is? He is God in the flesh, and he has come to rescue you from yourself. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. He is the troublemaker. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm in awe that you would care about someone like me. That you would go to all this trouble to want to have a relationship with me. And Lord, I know I'm not the only person who feels this. We've carried around that sin debt for so long and that moment when we finally came to our senses and we trusted in you to forgive us of our sins, we've never had a moment in our life where we felt more free. Lord, I pray that every day for those of us who profess our faith in you, that every day we would live our life for you. We are bought and paid by your precious blood. We have hope because you did not stay dead, but you rose again from the dead. And Lord, I just pray that we would walk in that. That when we bear the name Christian, that we would represent you in a manner that's worthy of that name. Lord, I know that there are people here today and people watching at home don't have a relationship with you. They don't know all the things that we've talked about. They don't know about the prophecies. They don't know about the craziness of the story of how you came. And they certainly didn't know all the different names that you were called. But they do now. And maybe right now, Lord, they understand why you came more than ever before. And I pray today would be the day they would finally surrender. That they would accept the payment that you made for them on the cross and they would trust you to be the leader and the forgiver of their life because you are the king of kings and you are the Lord of lords. Give us a moment of clarity and a moment of courage to make the decisions that you would have us to make. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.